Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and your host here on Last Week in the Church, where we sort through the flotsam and jetsam from the last week in Vatican and Global Catholic News and try to separate the wheat from the chaff. Here's what's on the menu for this week. First, after the death of Pope Benedict XVI, the Catholic Church loses another giant, in this case, a literal giant. The six foot six Australian Cardinal George Pell is dead at the age of 81. We will examine his life and his legacy. Second, the mother of all mystery stories around the Vatican, the disappearance of a 15-year-old Italian girl by the name of Emanuela Orlandi, better known as a Vatican girl because her family lived on Vatican grounds, is back in the news as the Vatican opens its own investigation. We will try to unpack what is going on there. Third, we lived through a kind of farcical Friday at the Vatican's trial of the century last week. Marx famously said that history repeats itself first as tragedy and then as farce, and we saw it on full public display. Here in Rome, we will sort through what went on and what it all means. Fourth, we've got the Jubilee of Hope, which is set to take place in the year 2025. Rome and the Italian government have announced an ambitious spending plan to try to get the Eternal City ready for what is expected to be the onslaught of tens of millions of pilgrims from all around the world. We'll explain the great spruce-up that is in the works here in Rome. And finally, after two monumentally commented upon Catholic deaths of late, that is, Benedict and Cardinal Pell, I want to talk about two other Catholics who recently went to their reward without a great deal of hullabaloo, but who nevertheless have something important to say to us about the story of the faith in our times. All that and more is waiting for you on Last Week in the Church, so please don't go anywhere. All right, everybody, we are back. Once again, I'm John Allen. Happy Tuesday to you. Happy Tuesday, January 17th in the year of our Lord, 2023. We begin this week with the surprise, and I emphasize surprise, death of Australian Cardinal George Pill, dead in Rome at the age of 81, following unforeseen complications for what profiled as a fairly routine hip replacement surgery at Rome's Salvatore Mundi Hospital. I want to talk about three aspects of Pell's passing. One would be his legacy as a public figure. Second would be sort of how, what his passing means. And then third, a couple of reflections on the private man. Because in addition to Pell being a public figure whom I covered for many years, it was also, I think it is fair to say, a friend. I want to say a couple things on that level. Let's begin with his legacy. Now, when you talk about George Pill, it is difficult to say much that doesn't begin and end these days with the clerical abuse scandals in Catholicism. Of course, as both the Archbishop of Melbourne and Sydney, Cardinal George Pill was accused by survivors of abuse, by advocacy organizations, by media outlets, and many others of having failed to respond appropriately to accusations of sexual abuse. Australia's Royal Commission, that massive government-sponsored inquiry into abuse 
in institutions, including the Catholic Church, concluded that Cardinal Pell had failed in his responsibility to act aggressively to prevent sexual abuse by several priests under his authority. These are charges Cardinal Pell always denied. And then, of course, there was the fact that Cardinal Pell himself was accused of clerical abuse by two choir boys. Now, you know, Catholic insiders always found those charges a bit difficult to believe because it required you to believe that in a busy cathedral church on a Sunday during a high mass, an archbishop by himself would have been able to return to a sacristy where no one else was there other than these two choir boys, have enough time unobserved to carry out the sexual assault while still wearing all of his liturgical vestments, which would render the acts alleged virtually physically impossible. Despite all of that, Pell was nevertheless, well, the first trial ended in a hung jury. A second trial convicted him of abuse, and he ended up doing more than 400 days in prison before Australia's high court finally exonerated him and ruled that he should never have been convicted in the first place. Now, all of that adds up to the fact that inevitably the abuse scandals are a major element of Pell's legacy. Those who are critics of George Pell, and they are many, will see him inside, an Aust inside Australia now, will see him probably till the end of time as a towering symbol of what went wrong in the Catholic Church. It's indifference, it's denial, it's cover-up, it's tendency to protect the institution at the expense of the victims. Whereas admirers of George Pill will remember him as a man who, as the Archbishop of Melbourne, was one of the first bishops anywhere in the world to adopt anti-abuse protocols, who spoke out against it at every opportunity, who defended himself with great dignity and forcefulness when he himself was accused and who, of course, eventually was exonerated, making him almost, in their eyes, a kind of martyr to a lynch mob mentality that simply wanted its pound of flesh. And that debate will go on as long as the name George Pell is discussed. But it would be terribly reductive to treat the sex abuse scandals as the only thing worthy of mention about Cardinal George Pell, because the truth of it is he was a protagonist in every major issue in Catholicism for at least three, if not four, decades. Ideologically, Pell was the leader of conservative Catholicism in the English-speaking world for most of that time. He was a major proponent of the election of Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger as Pope Benedict XVI in the 2005 conclave, swaying most of the English-speaking cardinals to come along with him in supporting Pope Benedict. He, was, he led the charge for a revision of how the Mass and the other sacraments of the Church are celebrated in the English language towards more reverential and traditional sorts of language, and on and on. In addition to all of that, he, of course, was also the tip of the spear for Pope Francis's financial reform when Francis appointed him in 2014 as the Vatican's first ever secretary for the economy. And although he started being marginalized pretty much right away, losing most of the internal fights to the Vatican's old guard, with the passage of time, Many of the ideas that Pell tried to push through early on that were temporarily set aside, many of those are, are now coming back. And so, in a sense, his prescription for financial reform has been vindicated and probably progressively will be more so as time goes on. All of that 
is inevitably part of the George Pell legacy. I would put it this way. George Pell was an indispensable figure in Catholicism, and certainly the church will, will not be the same without him. Now, a couple of things about his passage. One, his funeral was celebrated, as is customarily the case for cardinals, in St. Peter's Basilica. It took place in the chapel of the throne of Peter, the chair of Peter. Attendance was quite robust by the normal standards for these things. That is because often when cardinals die, they have been out of the public eye for a very long time. Not so in the case of Cardinal George Pill. Secondly, his death brought a couple of reminders of how George Pell was always a lightning rod. One is that a veteran Italian Vatican writer by the name of Sandro Magister confirmed that George Pell had been the author of an anonymous memo about the next conclave that circulated among cardinals last year, in which the papacy of Francis was described as a disaster and a catastrophe. And cardinals were urged, therefore, to pick somebody very different next time around. Also, just hours after Cardinal Pell died, The Spectator published the very last piece Cardinal Pell had ever written. It was about Pope Francis's upcoming Synod of Bishops on Synodality, which Pell referred to with his characteristic understatement as, and I'm quoting here, a toxic nightmare. That was George Pell in a nutshell. There was no guile about the man, never hid his outlook on things. But in any event, these, even in death, they were reminders that, that Pell had always been a polarizing figure. And all of that, again, I say, is part of his record. But I'd just like to say a couple things about the man. I first spoke to George Pell back in the 90s when he headed up a new Vatican commission having to do with liturgy and liturgical translation into English. And I was stunned back then at how candid and blunt Pell was both on and off the record. And we developed a kind of symbiotic friendship. You know, he always wanted to get the latest Roman gossip. I always wanted to get his colorful take on things. Over the years, we would go through times when we didn't talk very often, and then other times when we talked a lot. After he came back to Australia, after his legal problems, that more or less coincided with me moving back to Rome full-time, so we had more opportunities to get together. You know, he would come to our house for dinner, we would, we would have meals with him out, I'd see him, my wife and I would see him on other occasions. And I have to say, yeah, he was a bull in a china shop, and yes, he was an opinionated, strong cup of coffee, but he was also an incredibly kind, incredibly supportive guy. When I was in the hospital this fall, he was the first, you know, major ecclesiastical figure of any sort to call me up. And he did that more than once, routinely expressing interest in my condition, usually while also telling me that whatever I'd just written was idiotic and embarrassing. I mean, that too was George Bill, but with an undercurrent of genuine friendship, genuine concern. And look, that's part of the George Pell story, too. I know that there are people who felt hurt by him, felt betrayed by him. I also know that there are people who felt awed by him. I understand all of those reactions. What I'm trying to say is beneath all of that was a genuine human being with a heart as big as Texas. And at that level, too, I'm going to miss him. All right. Second up this week, 
the case of Emanuela Orlandi. This is the 15-year-old daughter of an official in the prefecture of the papal household who went missing in 1983 and whose disappearance has become the most celebrated, most renowned, most infamous unresolved mystery in contemporary Italian history. It got a new lease on life recently when Netflix carried a four-part documentary series about the case called Vatican Girl. And now, in response to pressures in the Italian parliament to open a parliamentary investigation, the Vatican has announced that it's going to open its own investigation, that it will be reviewing every scrap of paper, it will be re-interviewing witnesses, it's going to try to finally you know, lay to rest persistent rumors that the Vatican knows something that it isn't saying. Which probably, if there is any article of faith that most Italians have about the Orlandi saga, it's that, that somebody in the Vatican has to know what went down, and the trick to resolving this story is to get them to come clean. Now, it, is, it has always been puzzling to me why the Emanuela Orlandi story is such a front burner, tip of the tongue, huge cultural story here in Italy. But outside Italy, it is relatively unknown. It is often difficult to get people excited about this story, to get them interested in it. So this week, I reached out to an Italian journalist by the name of Fabrizio Peronacci, who covers the Orlandi story for Corriere della Sera. That's kind of the New York Times of Italy and asked him to explain to me why Italians are so fascinated with this thing. And he said there are basically three things. One, Italians have always loved a good giallo. That's their word. It literally means yellow. In in famous series of detective stories here, it was printed in yellow. That's why they use the word. So Italians love a good mystery story. And he said, this one's got all the elements. It's the Vatican. It's intrigue. It's politics. It's high finance. It's sex. It's the whole thing. And he called it a Dan Brown four-hour times. That's point one. Point two is that it harkens back to an era in recent Italian history where there are question marks and mysteries about many things, from the assassination of Italian Prime Minister in Aldo Moro Moro in 1978 to the collapse of the Banco Ambrosiano in 1982, and on and on. These are all kind of collectively the Italian Watergate a time when Italians lost their naivete, lost their faith in institutions, and this story connects them to that moment in time. And then finally, Paranacci said, at the heart of the Orlandi story is a child, a 15-year-old girl, and a grieving family. And in a culture in which children and family are sacrosanct, are core cultural value, that keeps this story alive. You know, he said that without the face of Emanuel Orlandi, this story would be just another unresolved mystery that was already kind of in the dustbins of history. But that base, he said, still has power for Italians today. Perhaps those three things do explain it. What we know for sure is the Vatican has now committed itself to a thorough internal review, and we also know the Orlandi family, especially Emanuela's brother Pietro, who has committed his life to the search for truth about his sister, and their lawyer, an Italian laywoman by the name of Laura Seguro, they are going to be holding the Vatican's feet to the fire to make sure that they comply with the promises that have been made. 
and it is going to be absolutely fascinating to see this thing play out. All right, third up this week, we have the Vatican trial of the century. This, of course, is the ongoing trial in the Vatican in which 10 defendants, including for the first time a cardinal of the Catholic Church, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, have been accused of various forms of financial crime, mostly linked to a spectacularly failed $400 million real estate deal in London that the Vatican engaged in and then eventually bought its way out of. So, you know, we've had occasion on this program before to talk about somewhat surreal aspects of this trial. But Friday got us deep into what can only be described as farce, especially because of the return performance of the femme fatale of the VatiLeaks scandal under Pope Benedict XVI, sorry, early in the papacy of Pope Francis. And that is an Italian lame woman by the name of Francesca Immacolata Chalqui. Chalqui, you may remember, was a member of a papal commission advising Francis on financial reform who was accused of leaking confidential Vatican documents. She was convicted and sentenced to 10 months in jail, though that sentence was suspended. That seemed to be the end of her as a Vatican personality, but now it emerges that in the current trial, where the star witness for the prosecution is an Italian monsignor by the name of Alberto Perlasca, Chalqui, unknown to Perlasca, helped shape his testimony through another intermediary, another Italian woman by the name of Giovanna Cieffri. Both Chalqui and Cieffri testified on Friday, contradicted each other on virtually every point. I would love to explain it all to you, but to invoke the Princess Bride, there is too much, so let me just sum up. They essentially can't, those two essentially canceled one another out, making it very difficult to take them seriously, and by extension, difficult to take Prolaska's testimony seriously. Now, in the meantime, Cardinal Bechu, who apparently has a strategy of swinging at every low pitch thrown to him, I mean, he is determined to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, it would seem, decided that he wanted to read a response to Chalqui's testimony, so he popped up and read a statement in which he complained that she was out to destroy him. But among other things, he talked about an episode last year in which Pope Francis sort of greeted Chalqui at the end of a Wednesday general audience. Basically, she came up and did the ring kiss, what Italians call the bacio mano. And that was it. But nevertheless, there were photos of it. And at the time, Bechu objected because that seemed like Pope Francis was endorsing Chalqui, who was saying all kinds of awful things about Bechu. And among other things, Bechu made the point to Pope Francis that him doing that was going to seem like interference in the trial because the Pope is not only the, you know, the, the supreme executive in the Vatican, he's also the head of the judiciary. And the Pope wrote back to apologize, saying basically, I'd pretty much forgotten who Chalqui is, and I didn't know that she's involved in the trial, so my bad, sorry. Which, by the way, if that is true, would certainly undercut another thing Chalqui has been claiming, which is that she and Francis are now bosom buddies, and she's been keeping him abreast of absolutely everything that she's been doing. Anyway, if there is a non-farcical takeaway to all of this, it is a reminder of something we've already talked about in this show, which is, there is a serious need for a reform in the Vatican judicial system, a genuine separation of powers between the executive and the judicial authority. Because the thing is, 
A pope still has to be pope. He has to make personnel appointments. He has to meet people. He has to give talks. And it is inevitable that if there is a trial going on, some of that is going to be seen as having consequences for the trial and stacking the deck either for the prosecution or for the defense. The only way to get around that is to have a genuinely independent civil judiciary in the Vatican that is not under the Pope's thumb. That would be easy to do. The Pope would remain the supreme authority in faith and morals, but when it comes to personnel, finance, and civil crime, you would have an independent judiciary like every other state, every other democratic state in the world has. And by the way, that would have the side benefit of bringing the Vatican's own practice into compliance with Catholic social teaching about how states ought to be organized everywhere else. So, you know, perhaps the farcical Friday was worth it if that point is driven home. We will see if that is actually the takeaway that people have. Fourth this week, the upcoming Great Jubilee in the year 2025 this is an ordinary jubilee in the sense that in modern times, these great jubilees in Rome happen on a rhythm of every 25 years. So the last one was under St. John Paul II in 2000. Now we have the jubilee of 2025, which Pope Francis tells us is going to be designated the jubilee of hope. Recently, there was a meeting between the mayor of Rome, Roberto Gualtieri, and Pope Francis, followed by a press conference with Gualtieri and an undersecretary of the national government here in Italy, an aide to Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney, in which they presented an ambitious nearly $2 billion spending plan with 187 separate public works projects here in Rome to try to get the city ready for what is anticipated to be tens of millions of extra visitors in the year 2025. And in the year 2000, the estimate was something like 25 million people came through the city for the Jubilee. It's expected to be even more in 2025. These improvements will include underpasses in the area around the Vatican so people don't have to try to fight their way across very busy streets, new bus lines, improved subway stops, information kiosks, all kinds of things, parking garages, you know, all kinds of things that are intended to make the area, especially around the Vatican, more navigable and user-friendly for all of those visitors. Some of this is of interest only if you live in Rome, but no matter where you are, here's the takeaway that is interesting. From the conversation around this event, it would appear that Pope Francis, at least in his own mind, fully intends to be around for this jubilee in 2025. I mean, all the verbiage from the Vatican is, Pope Francis will open the holy door. Pope Francis will do this. Pope Francis will do that during the course of the Jubilee. I mean, there is no proviso right now being made for someone else being in charge when this moment rolls around. If that is the case, of course, it would mean that three years from now, when Pope Francis is 89, you know, he would still be in the saddle. And anybody who is watching him right now, I would suggest I wouldn't bet against him. I mean, he's getting ready later this month to go to Congo and the South Sudan, and he's actually upset because he's not going to be able to go to Goma in eastern Congo because the security situation there has deteriorated. So in other words, this is a pope who's about to take an arduous journey and is mad that it's not going to be even more arduous. 
So, you know, is he going to be here for the Jubilee of 2025? I mean, God only knows, but I certainly would suggest the smart money would not be a big bet against it. All right. Finally, we have spent a lot of time in this show the last couple of weeks talking about the deaths of Benedict XVI and George Pell, and that is because they were both titans of the Catholic Church in their times. But for exactly that reason, they are also deeply controversial figures. I'd like to talk about two other Catholic deaths. Both of them coincidentally happened on the same day. It was Thursday, January 12th. In the city of Palermo in Sicily, in, in the southernmost Italy, a guy by the name of Biagio Conti, better known as Fratel Biagio, brother Biagio, died at the age of 59 after a long battle with colon cancer. He was known for serving the poor and the homeless in Palermo. He basically built something called the Mission of Hope and Charity, which today has three different facilities in the city. It takes care of about 800 people every day, serves 2,400 hot meals every day for shelter, basic medical care, hot showers and hygiene, you know, all kinds of things. And this basically on the back of one man's spiritual quest inspired by the story of Francis of Assisi. On the same day that Biagio died in Palermo, in Padua, Sister Adarita Guidoline, better known as Suorita, Sister Rita, went to her reward at the age of 109. She was the oldest living religious in Italy. She was a full 50 years, half century, older than Conti at the time of his death. She had, she took her vows, she was born in 1913, took her vows at the age of 21. For a couple of decades, she served in Padua, basically as a, a helper in after-school programs run by her order and as a cook. Then she went off as a missionary, first in Egypt and then in Libya, where she taught at a school for domestics, teaching basically hair cutting, you know, teaching somebody how to be a beautician or how to sew, how to make a living off of sewing. Then declining health forced her to come back to Italy. She resumed working in these after-school programs. In 1996, at the age of 83, she theoretically retired, but continued to volunteer in homes for needy families run by her order. She remained active all the way up until the very end. She was once asked the secret to her long life, and her answer was, I pray every day. I recommend it. If you do that, you will live long and you'll be happy. Look, the truth of it is, a week from now, nobody outside of Palermo or Padua is going to remember that these two people lived and died. They were not going to play to the great global acclaim or the great global controversy surrounding Benedict or Pell. But in that sense, they're much more representative of the real Catholic story. Most Catholics are never going to be popes or cardinals. They're never going to hold power in their hands. They're never going to make headlines. Yet, untold legions of Catholics every day, maybe not as heroically as Contigan, maybe not for as long as Guidoline, but in their own unspectacular, unheralded way, are also doing their best to serve God and to serve others. Now, look, that may have very little to do with the public narrative about Catholicism, which is shaped to a much greater degree by the Benedicts and Pells of the world. But I would contend that if you want to know the inner reality of Catholicism, the beating heart of the faith, it's not just the Benedicts and the Pells. It's the Contis and the Guidolines and the untold millions like them in every nook and cranny of the planet.
That is our show for this week. Thank you for being with us. We will be back here next Tuesday, same bat time, same bat channel. You'll find full coverage of all of these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. Until next week, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week. We will talk to you again soon.